Hello, and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Jacob Smith. Jacob is a co-founder at Packet and currently serves as vice president of bare metal strategy and marketing. Jacob co-founded Packet in 2014 with the goal of democratizing hyperscale infrastructure capabilities. Since then, Packet has been one of the early leaders in edge computing for business and earlier this year was acquired by Equinix. In this interview, Jacob discusses the founding of Packet and his vision for bringing the world of software into the world of physical networks, cloud infrastructure as a craft, what he sees as the next stages of edge computing, and much more. But before we get into it, here is a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and ZenLayer. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is Packet, an Equinix company. Packet is the leader in bare metal automation. They are on a mission to protect, connect, and power the digital world with developer-friendly physical infrastructure and a neutral, interconnected ecosystem that spans over 55 global markets. Learn more at packet.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Jacob Smith, co-founder and vice president at Packet, and your host, Matt Trefiro. Hi, I'm Matt Trefiro. I'm the chief marketing officer of Vapor.io, and I'm also the co-chair of the State of the Edge project of Linus Foundation. And I have with me here today, Jacob Smith, and he is also my co-chair at the State of the Edge. So we've known each other for quite a while. We'll try to not use too many inside jokes and talk all things Edge. So Jacob, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day out in the middle of nowhere. I'm calling in from Southern Vermont, which is known as the crappiest part of the internet, in case you're wondering. So if my, uh, if my voice breaks up, it's not me. It's just the copper wires connecting us. Yeah, and you're up there deploying some edge data centers. Is that what you're doing to improve the uh, the video conferencing? Yeah, it's the obvious like capitalist endeavor is to go save, you know, <laughs> and and bring a low latency gaming to the twelve people who live near me, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it is great that you have such a uh, a job that gives you so much mobility, and maybe we'll come back to that. But before we start talking about edge and current day, I'm super curious to know how you even got into technology. I mean, as I understand it, you have an opera background, a master's degree in music. So when I was young, I started playing the saxophone. And, you know, that was great because the saxophone is like literally meant to be easy to play. And so I was feeling great. But my brother and sister were playing in the orchestra. And what do you know, they don't have any room for saxophones in the orchestra, except for like once a year. And so I was like, well, how do I get in the orchestra? And they're like, well, no one's playing the bassoon. And I was like, sign me up. I didn't ask, like, why is no one playing the bassoon? (laughs) Ends up, it's super complicated. So I started playing the bassoon and really fell in love with it. Um, You know, just because it was, you know, complicated and mechanical. And, you know, it was like my early hacking. And so I started playing the bassoon in high school and then just kept going. So I went to... uh, undergrad at Carnegie Mellon, which is like super tech school, but I went for music. (laughs) And I spent most of my time hanging out in the computer lab because it was open 24 hours. I mean, can you imagine? Were you the resident bassoon player in the the (laughs) computer lab? (laughs) Well, a bassoon case with tips. Well, it was really funny because Carnegie Mellon was a very interdisciplinary school. And and so you could do all these kind of cross-collaborative classes. So I took one called Building Virtual Worlds 
which required someone from the music department, the art department, computer science, like they made everyone, you had to fill up enough so you could actually create a world. And so, you know, that got me into working on Silicon graphics computers in 1998. And it was super fun. I was like, wow, this is neat. I was already into computers because I grew up kind of in that, what do they call it? The Oregon Trail generation, you know, right between analog and digital, you know, going to Radio Shack when they still had it. <laughs> and, you know, like making my own computer because that's what you do when you, like when people don't make computers for you, right? <laughs> so, Well, I think those of us with liberal arts degrees get some, some ribbing from our, our technical twin brothers, for example. For instance. But I tend to see, I mean, so music has a lot of mathematics in it and mathematics and technology obviously go well together. So I, I can see the, the connection. Uh, do you remember the first computer you ever owned? Yeah, absolutely. So my brother and I, my twin brother, Zach, so we were in business together. So you, you might hear about that more. But he and I had a killer lawn mowing business. We charged $10 a week and then $30 a month on subscription. Like, because you got to get people on recurring revenue, right? You had a SaaS business going when you kids. I like it. <laughs> exactly. And it was the best business because my parents covered all the capital equipment, you know, <laughs> and we just made cash. So we saved up $2,000. It's a lot. It was a lot. But that's what got you like two gigs of RAM. And, you know, I can't remember the clock speed, but it wasn't very high. <laughs> you know, this was Pentium. So is a, is a PC, a DOS computer or Windows computer? Yeah, absolutely. My aunt had worked for IBM. And so she had helped us buy, um, when we were younger, a, a PS Junior, which we had in the house. And that was super fun growing up with. But of course, it was not the same as like when you could start going down to Fry's Electronics and start figuring out how to build your own, tweak it out. And so that's, um, that was the first computer that we built. And it was, I don't know, we were 12. Wow, you've come quite a way. So, so you're the chief marketing officer of Packet, also one of the co-founders. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about when you founded Packet and why you found it, what you saw the opportunity being. Yeah, well, it was mainly driven by a personal opportunity, which was my brother had been, he actually went to Juilliard as a musician and then got into tech right away. So in 2001, he got into tech and started working for an early Linux hosting company. What instrument did he play? He played the double bass. Yeah. So okay. he, yeah. So we were both on the lower end. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you, both, <laughs> you both checked the wrong box on the, what instrument you want to play for him. Exactly. And um, so he, he had sold a company in 2011 into InterNAP, which is a, you know, a, a co-location and, yeah. and cloud company. And he was looking for something to do. So he spent a year or two kind of floating around. And, and I was also kind of ready. I was playing in the opera, like you mentioned earlier. I was playing bassoon. I was, I was working a nonprofit and I had a marketing business on the side. So I was doing everything. Uh, and I was hustling. I had my side hustles before they were popular. And we were like, well, you know, maybe we should do something together. And the rule was, well, anything but infrastructure. Infrastructure is a big boys game now. This is like, this is not the way it was in 2001, 2002. You know, you have to have a lot of capital. This, you know, the cloud thing is like legit. So around 2013, we started looking for something to do. And we actually tried out a couple of different business ideas. One was we were going to do a blockchain based or backed by a real gold. That was, that was really cool. And we started a couple other ideas, but none of them really made sense because we didn't have any access or anything special to add to it. And so finally, we, we had this kind of uh, ritual of, of, of hosting a, a holiday party in New York. 
every December and inviting like all the old voxel crew and all the, just, you know, just the friends, right? And everyone was all working at different places, going working at tech companies and other things. And we were sitting around a table in the basement of the Museum for Chinese in America. And it was a whole bunch of network nerds going like, you know, this isn't the way it should work. Uh, we should have BGP for everyone and this layer two stuff, it's for the dogs. And they were just like, I didn't understand the words they were saying. But they all seemed very passionate that whatever the way was going now was the wrong way. And the better way would be to do it a different way. <laughs> and I was like, we should do that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really what started us down the path of infrastructure. And then we worked on it for a couple of months and basically came up with the idea for Packet, which was how to connect what we saw as a software, the world of software, with the world down below, right? The world of intellectual property and silicon and hardware. And could we do that without getting in the way? Could we, can we provide a, a way of automating that experience and delivering it without getting in there and putting our opinion on it, right? Like a hypervisor and all the other stuff. So call it bare metal now. But at the time we were just like, could we give computers to developers that felt like they actually wanted to use them? That's interesting because it, to, to some extent, you know, there's that old joke that all problems in computer science are solved with layers of abstraction. And so the virtual machine and the cloud services that enabled, you know, were the definition of the world at that point and to many extent now. And so it's a little counterintuitive to think, well, let's get rid of all that stuff that enabled the cloud. So one thing you said is really interesting. You said, we wanted to give something to developers wanted to use, and that seems important. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, we just saw, I mean, I use developers as a stand-in for software. And I love like Andy Jassy last year at AWS said something to the akin of like, if you're in innovation, then you probably are in the software because all software is where innovation is happening. So if for software, you need developers, and developers hate IT and love cloud. So you probably need to be in the cloud, which, of course, was a great, you know, narrative right into <laughs> right. <laughs> to AWS. But also, I think it's true. I think that software is like the, the macro trend of our world, and uh, I'll bet on software any day, open source especially. And that the, the, the problem with software and the opportunity with software growing up with open source in the 2000s and now especially this decade there's so much opinion about it. It's so different. And so I use developers as a stand-in for software. I really think the customer is software. And the problem, like I said, is like there's so much diversity. And there's just more and more. And when you pair that with diversity of hardware, like, you know, you, we talk, I say the word silicon, but I really just mean like when anything gets to scale, you start kind of wrapping the, the hardware around the software, like doing it together. Like look at Apple right? They make every bit of their supply chain work together to do something amazing. And, you know, what we, what we were looking at in 2014 wasn't like obvious, but it was sort of like, if you, if you think on 10 year cycles, which is how long it takes to build infrastructure, you know, because yeah, you're doing sure. it right now <laughs> sure. is, you know, what's it going to look like in 10 years, way different than the previous 10 years. And we thought, okay, well, there's going to be like a lot of things that are scaling up and changing the way we interact with everything probably going to be software driven and we'll probably care a lot more about the hardware. And so thinking about doing that meant that we would have to design a different model instead of a lot of the same thing in a few places. We're like, we probably need to figure out how people can use a lot of different things in a lot of different places because that's how you create experiences um, that are unique and personalized. And, and I had two kind of run-ins in 2014 that, that really catalyzed, I think, what we do today, which was 
Alex Polvi was just starting CoreOS and he dropped by New York. And I guess he had been like backpacking in China or doing something after, you know, finishing with Rackspace. And, and we're like, what are you working on? And he's like, reinventing Linux. And you're like, really? <laughs> and that just reinforced this idea that developers and software were going to work all the way down. So while the cloud was abstracting, like you said, layers of abstraction to solve all the problems that were there, which was repeatability and scalability and whatever, software developers were working down the stack. And we saw those things in opposition. Okay? And then the other one was actually a friend of mine who had invested in Zach's previous business named Bill Lubby. And he actually sold a business to Equinix as well. <laughs> and, you know, I'd said, hey, Bill, you know, do you want to invest in Packet? And he's like, ah, kind of out of infrastructure. I'm like, really? What are you into? And he's like, craft. He was investing in all kinds of stuff to do with the craft movement, which was like, hey, what do we care you about? Make, nice? Makers movement? like Yeah, makers, but also like, you know, yeah. I mean, what kind of coffee do you drink, Matt? You know, yeah, you know, got it. This idea of sort of like, you know, caring do you, do you about roast it yourself <laughs> before you grow No, it. but I know the guy who does, so it's all yeah. good. <laughs> and that idea I thought really jived with my sensibility of like who the buyer was and who was creating was someone who was caring about the craft mm. of their software and their infrastructure and the experiences they're creating. And I remember getting laughed out of the room by my, by Raj, um, Raj Dutt, who runs Grafana. Cause I was like, what do you think about this for a tagline? infrastructure is not a commodity. It's a craft. And he just laughed. He was like, that's so stupid. <laughs> I mean, that was like Heroku's motto for years. So definitely. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was happening. I was just an opera musician. I didn't know. Heroku. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that idea of the buyer being different, software getting way big, infrastructure getting more specialized, all led us to think, how do we get out of the way? How do we focus on delivery model? How do we focus on fundamental things? And that's really what we went out to do and I think it led us to the edge like that's what led us to the idea of the edge so before we go into edge deep let me put a thumbtack in this and and for the uh, listeners who uh, may not know what packet is or why you mentioned Equinix let me try to describe what packet is and you tell me if, if I'm right let's do it so when you think of the cloud you go and well, let's just pick Amazon uh, for a particular mm -hmm. reason. You go and you provision an EC2 instance. And the reality is that is not a machine. It's not a piece of hardware. It runs on a machine somewhere. But all you're guaranteed is that you're going to get some fraction of some machine somewhere for the most part. I mean, if you buy a large enough instance, you might actually get a dedicated machine. Right. But you don't ever see it. You never actually get to touch it, like you said. You never get to touch the bespoke hardware. And it's, it's the power of it is they're all the same. And what you're saying is, well, that cloud is huge, it doesn't serve all of the developers, that there's a class of developer that cares about the craft or maybe cares about some other things that they can't do in a virtual instance somewhere or in a location that, you know, isn't well suited for lots and lots and lots of racks of, of servers. And that's when people come to pack it. Is that, is that essentially it? Yeah. I mean, when you have more opinion, basically about what it is, where it is, who owns it, you know, is it the latest and greatest or is it the one from nine months ago? Do I have access to the BIOS or not? You know, all the things that yeah. I would say are not generic. So I, I like to describe Packet in the infrastructure business. We're really, if you think of the cloud as sort of like retail banking, you know, there's like, it's good for 80 or 85% of everyone. The features aren't that different when you go to wealth management, <laughs> but the the buyer's looking for something different. And it could be, and I think what we see with our customers is that you've got everything. You've got stuff that's generic or stuff that's kind of generic or stuff that needs to scale. And then you've got stuff that just is different. And I think we're betting on the fact that there's going to be 
a real growth in the the number of companies that try to create amazing experiences to win mobility or win entertainment or win healthcare or whatever. And if I'm trying to squeeze that last 10%, I'm going to want to go to the hardware. You're going to just care about all of it. We, I mean, I, I don't think it's always about hardware. I just think it's that you're going to care about the whole thing. And the whole thing, obviously, it's about cost. It's about performance. It's about security. It's about where it is. It's about so many things. We're not smart enough to know those. I think the challenge is really that we have a hyperscale world, supply chain and distribution. We're good at that. You know, the cloud providers have nailed it. But when you start doing subscale, like you want to do two racks in Detroit, good luck, right? And that's the business that I think we're in as we look at not only edge versus core, you know, that kind of concept, but just as we look at businesses being all digital businesses, <laughs> they're all going to be digital businesses. They're just not going to, I mean, not everyone, they're, the rest of them going to get out. But like the ones who really go and try to lead those spaces are going to be all in on technology and they're going to need a lot of help. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. The more our businesses become digital, the more we're dependent on like actual mechanical things, you know, and it's, and I, I come from the cloud world. And so the, the fact that data centers have moving parts was actually a surprise to me. I mean, I, if you think about it, of course they do, but you know, servers have fans and <laughs> so interesting, <laughs> right? There are these, these cables that, that people have to like figure wow, out. How they to make a lot of noise. They make yeah. A and they make a lot of noise. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting how much infrastructure and how many people have to care about the infrastructure to actually actually make it work. Let's talk a little bit about about edge. You know, we, we throw that term out there. You're using it in a way that that I think expects that someone like me, and because we sit on the we both chair coach the stay of the edge, we probably are talking about the same thing. But just for the, for the audience basis, when you think about edge, like what do, what do you think about? Like what's happening at the edge and where's packet on the edge and how you relate to everything else that's happening on the edge? Cool. Well certainly things are changing. And I think it's a good question, like, what does the edge mean to you versus what does it mean to me? And that's um, going to be different. So for us, you know, we've become part of Equinix. So we required and closed the transaction in March to become, you know, part of Equinix. And what they were trying to do was to bring a more automated and operated experience to accessing connectivity ecosystems. That's the business that Equinix would, I think, describe themselves as being in and connecting businesses and connecting networks and connecting things. And, you know, currently the way you do that at Equinix is you, you know, get a rack and fill it with servers <laughs> and do it yourself. And that's hard for not only some companies, but to do it at a global scale. I mean, Equinix now has, you know, 210 or so data centers and 60 markets. This is a lot of places to go if you are interested in being that. So when we think about edge at Equinix, we obviously think about the interconnection edge. And I think that that's, you know, a little bit of insider baseball for people who come not from the co-location or the earlier days of the internet, which is like, how does the internet work again? <laughs> it just works. I don't know. Right. If you come from a cloud world, it just works. It's kind of amazing. But when you start getting down there into the builders of the internet, how the internet works, it works around proximity and, you know, physical connections and fiber and all that stuff. And where those aggregate is a really important center of gravity. Right? And, you know, I think it's not too far to say that for a lot of companies, or even for a lot of platforms, the edge is really at those interconnection points. That's where they meet the telco operator or the, the ISP or the enterprise network and the cloud. And that's, you know, from a physics standpoint, 
the logical edge. And I think it, it really makes a lot of sense too, because that's where the internet backbone, so to speak, begins and ends. And so once you're on the backbone, you're probably long hauling to some centralized data center campus or something, right? But at, at the off-ramp of the backbone, so to speak, is an internet connection point. And you know, your parent company, Equinix, has you know, done a masterful job in enabling these internet connection points. It's been the focus, right? It's been their focus since they were started in 1998. And I think that that's something we really relate to. Like we obviously came in with kind of a, almost a religious focus on like what we do and what we don't do, right? And so like, we don't go up the stack, we go down the stack, very sort of like mission driven. And with Equinix, they're really very serious about being in the business of, of interconnection, of connecting things and being in service to that. Now, what it means from the edge, when I was going to kind of go there next, I think things are changing. Because I think that we are seeing, you know, some really early but really strong examples of like, well, if I could do it differently, maybe I would do it differently. Like look at, you know, smart retail, right? Or delivery. You know, kind of, you know, six months ago, we would have said that's important and that's emerging. But in a post, you know, COVID reality, Autonomous drones are looking pretty good, aren't they? kind of urgent. (laughs) I was making fun of it the other day. I was like thinking about, you know, remember the New York Times about three years ago started doing virtual reality, like reporting like a little bit, like, and there was like, I don't remember that, but yeah. Well, either way, I, well, I remember. I remember it. when. I remember when. Yeah, the, the cardboard, the Google Glass, yeah, the cardboard, cardboard thing, cardboard, and I was yeah. like, "Oh, that's cute," but like, kind of silly. And now I'm like, "Actually, it's really good idea." <laughs> yeah, right, right. I can't get on an airplane, but I'd like to go visit the Eiffel Tower. And that's right. You know, Oculus is actually kind of good at that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm attending a conference next month with Oculus. You know, and I'm like super like, okay, well, that's like maybe not the way I would prefer to do it. I would prefer to fly to Cambridge and hang out in a pub and go to do all the things that we as humans want to do. But I can see it kind of reinforces this idea that, you know, technology is critical to what we're doing next. And we have to do it in a more efficient way. We have to do it in a more scalable way. Um, And that means, in my view, that we have to continue to be agile with the technology, the hardware, the software, the networks that pull it all together, the building blocks. That if we use generic building blocks, we're going to make a lot of the same things. And I think that those are going to be pushed in new ways. So I think the edge is going to shift. I think we're we're kind of, you know, seeing, you know, which workloads and things will pull us there fastest, but otherwise we're going to continue to change that definition, which I think is revolutionary. I mean, we really, we really haven't seen the edge of the internet shift since it got started. Yeah. In fact, in fact, in the, in the most recent State of the Edge report, which shameless plug, stayoftheedge.com, free to download. <laughs> it's an open source project. So I don't feel too bad about plugging it. Good. But we talk about the, the, the three acts of the internet. And, you know, the, the transition point from the first act to the second act is when the CDNs, you know, at that point, it was Akamai, yep. and it came out of some research from MIT. In fact, I, when I did the research, because we're, we're like, let's get down to the bottom of what edge computing means, because there's, you know, 100 different answers. And the first reference to edge computing that I was able to discover in the literature was the research paper, the folks yep. that I made it. Maybe it existed prior to that, but that, that was when I first, edge computing the way you and I are talking about it today, first right. existed. But that was one way, and it was caching. And now we're entering a world, this sort of you know, third act of the internet, where 
you know, a lot of things are changing. You know, I talk about how we're moving from a world of primarily humans talking to machines to primarily machines talking to machines. And machines are relentless. First of all, they're, they're impatient, right? You know, we'll write, we'll wait, we'll wait ones of seconds to refresh Facebook. We'll not be happy about it, but we'll do it. But for a machine, you know, the, the car just traveled the length of a football field <laughs> while you're waiting for Facebook to load. Totally. And so there's, it's creating these, these new demands on, on the network. And so what I, what I hear you saying from Packet's perspective, that at least today, there's a major nexus point, which is this, this internet exchange point where all these networks come together and peer or exchange data. And that's kind of an, an ideal place to at least begin starting to build out some of this, this hardware infrastructure. How do you view the continuum from, let's say that, that, well, let's go all the way to the core. How do you, I mean, so there's the, the core internet and there's the, you know, long haul fiber or the BGP routes. Then there's this, this, you know, internet exchange point the sort of typically on a regional basis, uh, which might be, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles, depending on whether it's a tier one or tier three city from, you know, the end user. And then there's all this space between the IX point and the last mile network, which is still has to get to the user and they have the, the user and they have a lot of, you know, what people are calling edge computing that sort of looks a lot like on-prem. So how do you, how do you deconstruct that whole spectrum and how do you see them working together and driving or cannibalizing each other? Well, I definitely think that last phrase working together, I mean, is like, it has to, right? I mean, in a way that's why Equinox even got started because the internet looked like it was going to break in the nineties because it was like, well, oh, we're just going to make it private. We're not going to interconnect. We're not going to share. You know, and that's become a huge, you know, value to the internet. As yeah, if we scale. didn't have peering, I don't know what we'd have. It'd be right. a very different experience. And so I think it will be about working together and that it's not like clear what people or applications or whatever value. And so you have to have ways to exchange and, and deal with that and connect. So I think that we will be interconnecting and we will be working together, which I think is at the core of the spirit of the internet. And I hope it thrives. And I think that that's a good idea. <laughs> What I think we'll see is that, first of all, software is going to get way smarter about stuff that we're talking about. Like, we're talking about, like, you know. Yeah, what are some examples? Well, we're talking about things like, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles, right? Well, proximity is a complicated thing when it's thinking about traffic and congestion and, you know, direct routes or other. I mean, Network hops, jitter, distance, speed just of light. Very, yeah. And, you know, I don't think that we're going to escape sort of like, well, everything's not treated equally. Like, there will be fast lanes. There will be ways in which, you know, people are like, well, I, I happen to launch a few thousand satellites over the last few years. So maybe I'll get to Singapore a different way, you know, for money. I think that there's a lot that's going to change that way. And that what software will do is better understand those options and software will help us make better choices. And so software needs to be invited in. I think this is really where the world of software is, is huge, but where I'm most interested in evolving right now is learning how to understand networks. You know, we, we learned a lot about computers with software over the last few years, call it cloud native, but we've just really scratched the surface in a way because like, like I said earlier, the cloud just kind of works. Well, one of the reasons that it works is that you don't have to worry about all that network stuff. <laughs> it just kind of, right. right, right. So kind somebody, of somebody lower, lower in the stack is retrying your packets that were yeah, dropped exactly. or arrived out of sequence. <laughs> exactly. And actually, we called our, our company Packet because the one thing you have to buy from a cloud provider is network, right? They have a lot of influence over you there. But I think that we're, we're inviting more people in, especially with the edge. It's a huge opportunity to bring the world of software, call it developers, into the world of physical networks that currently power the internet. And I think very well. 
So that's a, a really interesting opportunity. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think I think that historically we've thought of the internet as a bunch of computers with a network that connects them. And there is potentially an equally, maybe even more valid way of doing it. It's like, no, it's actually a network with some computers attached. That's right. I mean, the inter internet. And I, I do think, you know, we experience right now, especially in a very, you know, shelter at home kind of world, we're experiencing a lot of things through through the lens of connectivity. And so that's a really interesting, like, obviously, you got to do something with that. And so I think I would make a judgment about one being more important than the other. But I think that there has been a lack of software innovation on the network side and just understanding the physical world, which is like, you know, I always use the analogy, my brother gave it to me one time, which is like, in the US, we have, you know, phone numbers that historically before cell phones were, you know, a way in which you could find which central office you were. They're, they're so, literally, literally routing codes. Go, go left here, right there. Exactly. <laughs> with physical switches, with physical switches that clicked and clacked. Exactly. And my, my you know, phone number growing up was 714-970, which got you literally to the neighborhood central office. Yeah. And I think that the equivalent of that doesn't yet exist for the edge and for being in thousands of places with your application, whatever it is. And what to pay for it? Is it all going to be, you know, 32 cents an hour kind of stuff? Or is it going to be more dynamic? I think we have a lot of room to grow there. And that'll be a super What, what do you think? What, do you, what are your predictions? I mean, it's hard. Yeah, my prediction is that it'll look a lot more like other kinds of dynamic markets where, where inventory is limited and varies all the time. Because if there's one thing that's like really obvious about the edge versus the core is that there's just like a lot less room, right? <laughs> like there's like less space. And so that- Which is kind of the inverse of the cloud. We tend to think of the cloud as just infinitely scalable. Like you, you need another instance, you get another instance. Yeah. Yeah, you're right at the edge. Because you, you talked about, you know, the two, two racks in Detroit. Yeah, if you were so lucky, right? Yeah. To, you know, and then what if you need certain kinds of things? You know, what if you need anything special? And so I think- Like what's idea, special? A GPU? Yeah, what if I, I can only run it where Tensor I flow can- chip or something, yeah. Yeah, or what if I need DPTK offloads? What if I need- SGX to secure my, you know, enclaves. I don't know, whatever my requirements are, says yeah. BMW. In, in, in a thousand places. Yeah, or, or wherever I'm willing to pay for it. You know, there's all kinds of nuance there. So I think, I think it'll be super fun to see software get super smart about all the things, the assets, uh, including the network, and help us create a marketplace that looks a lot more like, I mean, it's not a great time to be in the airline business, but something the hotel and the airline business did over the last 10 years was figured out how to create amazingly dynamic pricing, you know? And I think we'll move away. Can I, can I order uh, a frequent server points? Totally. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think we should absolutely have a Delta. Right. Launch. You run a bunch of workloads late at night when nobody else is doing it, we'll give you a free one in the morning. <laughs> I think this is, this is how it will go. Yeah. And, and probably the, the, the big difference is that these decisions will need to be made thousands of times per second. If all not the time. millions of times per second. And so it has to be done in software. So I think we need, we, we also need, we need software to get smarter. And that, that's, that's tricky because we have to open up things that are traditionally not very open. You know, things like private networks are not usually... Well, yeah, like, I was going to ask you about that. So you seem to have a strong opinion, one that I think I agree with, which is that in order for the software to get smarter, it has to get much better at understanding like what's there, what's running on, what, what the routes are what the reliability is, what the network congestion is. So how is all that information getting surfaced? Yeah, well, I think some of it's our job is to create standards with each other, you know, as service providers. 
to do the equivalent of 714970, you know, and figure that out. And, you know, standards then create, I mean, I, I'm not, I'll say it again, I'll bet on software anytime. I think properly served up access, innovation will occur. And that there are a lot of innovation minded people touching internet infrastructure. And so it's kind of in our best interest. Instead of guessing the use cases and saying, I know what it's going to be. I know what it's going to be. The one that's going to make all the money. <laughs> um, the one that's going to make it all make sense for me to invest in these super expensive long-term things when the, the world is moving so fast. I think it's better to go the other way and look at how to be more open. Like you look at what other things the clouds have done super well. They've created ecosystems. They've created ecosystems where if you're in the marketplace, you're going to do more business. And so there's like a lot of reason why you should invest in that. And I think we can create the same mindset around the inverse, which is this diverse, totally wild west, weird, probably special, maybe only matters to a few or a few hundred companies, um, but it's super valuable, world called the edge. So, so do you see a world where, because you mentioned, you mentioned interoperability in standards. Mm -hmm. So do you see a world where a software program can say, I need a computer that looks like X, like a declarative statement? and kind of put it out there and, you know, not just to pack it, to maybe, you know, pack it prime. Yeah. And like someone tells me, yeah, if, you, if you're willing to pay a nickel, I'll run that workload. I mean, is that, is that the future? I think, it's a, I think it's definitely a part of it. I would love to see more of that. I think, I mean, I've never been a blockchain guy, despite my poking I think You almost idea. founded a blockchain company backed with gold. <laughs> but I stepped away from it. Okay. Maybe it was a good idea. But, you know, I've never been sort of into the crypto you know, kind of scene, but I'm really intrigued by a lot of the work happening there around highly distributed computer and yeah, maybe you trust. could decentralize some of that decision making. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think that there's a lot of value in that. You know, in, in the the cores sitting on our phone that we're not using most of the time. I mean, this is where we, as a world, we have limited resources, right? And we will need to become more efficient as we scale these things up and become more you know, driven and billions of people are using them. And I think that's, that's kind of the, the answer is, is inviting that kind of innovation and, and utilization. And so interoperability is, is key. And I think software is kind of built to be that way. We see it with cloud native kind of changing the world in four years. It's not, not because it's the best tech ever. It's because it allows you to be portable. Yeah, you said something interesting, and I, I, I'm not going to get it right, but I'll get, I'll get it close. I'll paraphrase it close. But it was essentially, you know, access served up properly but gets innovation. Tell me about that. Like where, where have you seen that in the past and where are you seeing it now in your business or in your projected you know, future business? Well, I mean, I think access is key for learning, for doing, for trying, for failing, right? So for me, some of that access was at that 24-hour computer lab, you know, at Carnegie Mellon or the fact that someone was like, hey, there's an empty seat at the orchestra if you are willing to suck at the bassoon, come, come on down, right? I think just the ability to go and do and learn is important. From an access standpoint, like we've had a lot of initiatives. We partner very closely with the world of silicon because we don't, by definition, abstract people from it, right? So you want to buy, you know, ARM-based processor, an Intel-based processor, an AMD-based processor from us? Sounds good. You know, you want to be very opinionated about that where we welcome that. And so we've had some neat partnerships and I've been amazed. We did one a couple of years ago when ARM was start, first starting to try to get in the data center space. And, you know, like we, we had gotten some investment from SoftBank. So we were looking at this a lot and we called up the guys at ARM. We're like, what if you just gave it away through like an API to like the right people? 
And they're like, really? That actually would be really helpful for us. And so we came up with a program called Works on Arm, where we just gave infrastructure to open source so that they could build software on it so that then it would be upstream naturally. And it's been a huge success, or I mean, I think part of the success of, of ARM kind of going from a, gosh, it just doesn't work <laughs> for me because my software doesn't work on it to being like, works pretty good. And we saw the same thing with um, the CNCF where we donated infrastructure there. And really it was just like completely unopinionated. And we, the weirdest things are attracted to that. So I think lowering the barriers you know, for access are important when we want to see innovation that's not obvious but maybe takes a little bit of a leap. And that's where I think we can collaborate. You know, that's where collaboration is valuable to all of us, even if we're competing with each other, right? It's because the bigger, the bigger the pool or the tent or whatever you want to use analogy, the better. Yeah. And it's the, the power of a, a platform. And I know that that term is overused, but I think the spirit of it, we can probably agree on the, the ability to, you know, whether it's right once deploy many, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or to, you know, utilize tools that remove the complexity, whether it's because you've got fungibility developers, meaning, you know, everybody that, that builds apps for one of the major clouds has a job somewhere, right? Right. And so you get, you create these, 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 pla- and open source, you mentioned open source earlier, and open source is a platform itself, you know, you think about like an example that I love to use is the 35 millimeter film market, which is, you know, something that predates most, <laughs> most people today. But, you know, back in the day when like film, film used, you know, actual cameras used film. emulsion yeah. that, that reacted to light and physical shutters and all that stuff. But the, the camera manufacturers, the film manufacturers got together and they say, look, let's compete on the quality of the emulsion, the, the sophistication of the lenses, the speed of the shutter mechanisms, the weight of the camera, the features. But let's not compete on the platform, which is the how the distance between the sprockets in, in right. the film. And I think to some extent, you know, open source is like that. It's like, how can we all invest in this platform that raises the tide for all ships so that we can compete at this higher level, which is right, on, where our value build on, on top really of, is. Yeah. yeah, on top of the platform. And I actually see that analogy with Stay of the Edge, which I want to talk a little bit about because, you know, the origin story exists, well, not in this room because we're actually doing this over <laughs> Zoom, but the origin story exists in this room and the fact that it's now an open source project is sort of interesting. So why don't we transition to the State of the Edge, which for Do those it. people who don't know, it's a uh, project at the Linux Foundation. It's one of the top level founding projects of LF Edge. Its pathway into Linux Foundation was over time and interesting. It started with the open glossary of edge computing. But let's, let's roll back. Before LF Edge even existed, before we had anything, we were having beers in San Francisco. And w- what do you remember from that day? <laughs> well, I remember it was like at the end of one of these, you know, kind of whirlwind. It was probably a VC pitch trip where I was like, we're running out of money. We need to really go to San Francisco and you, find you, someone. You want to buy, you want to build infrastructure? <laughs> I know. Yes. Many knows. Van Hill Roll loved yes. you, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. And so I probably really needed that beer that we had. But I remember we got together because we were searching out people who were just doing stuff that, you know, as my friend Andy Schwabecker from SoftBank would say, if you loved 4G, wait until 6G, which is like the future is never really clear. There's just people working on it. And then you're going to find out later. And we were looking for people like uh, Grid Raster and, you know, various people who were working on new, different, totally impractical things, right? And I think that's what brought us into the same room frequently, including that outdoor beer garden to kind of like, we should 
do something. It was one of those crazy idea sessions, right? Which was, I think, crazy in a way that's very grounded in being collaborative humans, which is like, we should work together on something. And I love that kind of feeling that that open source still, like, in a way has become this powerhouse. But it, it was, oh, it, it originally started yeah, you as know, like, I never, I never thought about that, really. But it's, it's, it's very much the case that working on the state of the edge, I mean, you know, there, there were enough participants in certainly this last year mm-hmm. that some of us competed with each other. Totally. And yet when we were working on the state of the edge, we took that hat off because we we're all working on this, this greater project. That's a really interesting point. I and I don't think it's just that. altruism. I think there's some of that because that feels good. And I think for some of us who benefited from, from things like open source or other kinds of collaboration, you know, I grew up playing in orchestras or maybe some people played sports, you know, where you, you come together as a team, right? And sometimes you're on the same team, but sometimes you're also just doing a pickup game. And that, that's a really human thing, which we miss now that we're not able to be together, right? <laughs> but the idea of collaborating, not just for altruism, but because it's in rational self-interest, as Ayn Rand would say, right? It's like, it's good for business. It makes sense. I think that that's the really strong reason behind the state of the edge and behind other things like that, which are like standards and, you know, like, let's figure out that problem in the film. And, you know, this is just logical. It doesn't always work out. And sometimes I think state of the edge came at the right time, frankly, like we, we came to the conclusion that we should collaborate and invite people in to help get a common language around the edge and try to give it a voice that was neutral because there were other things floating around that were, you know, this company talks about their edge stuff and this company talks about that, but we, we went in a different direction. And I think that has really helped to set the tone that is logical for the edge. Like we are going to work together. So that was, that was what, 2017? Yeah. Yeah. Is it? Okay. So, so, so when it comes to edge computing, cause this, you know, presumably is a, a podcast about edge, what has changed the most in your mind? Well, I'll tell you what I think hasn't changed. I think the, the edge actually hasn't changed much. Okay. I think the potential of it is much clearer. Well, I think we're still getting gravity back to, like we opened up you know, some sites with you guys in Chicago, and of course we, we backhauled, it, backhauled a lot of our traffic over to the, the Equinix in Chicago, right? right? I think that's still a thing, right? And that's okay. But what's, what's really changed completely, I mean, I just think it's easy to forget how like, portability of like, not just workload, but like all the workload, like databases and weird stuff and everything. Three years ago, that was like, I mean, there were people hoping for it, but it wasn't really happening in a scalable way. And now we have like so much progress on the ability for, frankly, I'd say fairly average technology, you know, users to deploy stuff in a lot of places. And I think that's a huge shift that's going to enable so much. Because like you said, you were talking about CDNs earlier. I mean, how many, <laughs> you know, how many companies really had infrastructure in 100 or 200 or 300 places? Like, not very many. Yeah, like kind of on 20. one hand, kind of many. <laughs> <laughs> <Or> maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, if you start looking at a couple of tacos and whatnot, but like, that's true. I think now, like three years ago, that would have still been the case. You would have been like, Raise your hand if you have infrastructure only in US East. And that would have been most people. Like, oh, are you in lots of locations called US East and US West? Right. <laughs> but now I think you're seeing the, the potential and even the reality where you could find people being like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could deploy this application or this part of my application globally. Uh, and I think that's a huge mind shift. And that's like win behind our sales here as we kind of figure out the next chapter. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I think of, you know, it's sort of interesting, the tussles we had in the industry back in 2017 are very different than the tussles we have today. I mean, b- back then, one of the biggest arguments is whether your edge workload, and I'm oversimplifying this, is going to run on or next to the device out in the field, or whether it's going to run on or next to the infrastructure, you know, at an IX point or at the base of a cell tower or at a, you know, some other, some other, you know, fiber nexus or whatever. And it turns out the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? It's, it's right? not or. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't think anybody really ever thought the airbag of the car is going to be deployed over a 5G network by some cloud workload that is subject to, you know, a bunch of different variables that a tight, you know, embedded system control loop inside the car, you know, can do a lot better. I think the answer we don't know. But yeah, the answer, and I love, I, I mentioned my friend Andy Schwabbecker, who's at, who's at SoftBank and, and was an investor in us. And he gave a presentation one time at our conference IFX that I was so great. He was like, you know, if you loved 4G, wait until 6G, which it was, it was really funny because you think about 4G, which is the most recent evolution that we have, that we can all remember and watched happen. And like, what was the big killer app? before the iPhone was created and created the App Store. Like, there wasn't. <laughs> it, the, elimin- the elimination of the voice call. Right. <laughs> that was the big innovation. And then, you know, Steve Jobs shows up with this, like, magical device or whatever they called it. And 4G was, was useful for that. And, and suddenly then you had a reason for 4G. But you didn't have it before. We had to build it all first. And I think that's the thing, same thing with 5G and, frankly, with a lot of infrastructure. Yeah, you know, you know what's really interesting. So you talk about you know building platforms. You talk about you know layers of abstraction and tooling that that brings some commonalities to and solve some of these harder problems. And, and the iPhone's actually a really good example because you know you, one of the thought lines that you introduced earlier was this idea that we actually don't know what the killer app's going to be. I mean, we have some hypotheses and we have a sense of where those Venn diagrams of things that people will find valuable things that are now capable with this new infrastructure, the software tooling that's available, there's a vent, you know, there's overlapping sense there. And we have, a, we have this intuition that if we build something, these imaginative things, you think about the iPhone, right? Like, I mean, when it was launched, it was launched as, okay, this is a phone, you can make voice calls, it, it your, has your music collection, it's an iPod, and you can do yeah. email, right? right? Or browse the web. Like that was, Maybe. that was, that's what, <laughs> right, that's what it was. And not that much farther out came something that we all take for granted, but the time seemed aptly miraculous, and that was Uber. And the only reason Uber existed is because someone was crazy enough to ship a phone that had a high-resolution display, you know, uh, depended on on you know, satellites in the air for GPS that somebody Absolutely. else put up, and yep. a, an LTE network that somebody else put up, and all of these things. And suddenly, you've got the ability to you know call a car to go wherever you want. And transportation, arguably, has been completely reinvented because of that. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's just a truism that, you know, we don't know the, I mean, we can all take bets. And I think that that's uh, an exciting place to be is taking big bets and trying to be right and figure it out. But it's it's really exciting to see the velocity with which, uh, call it the edge, is is moving where it's just like whatever is next is definitely coming. You can feel it in the air. Everything like we talked about earlier, like VR through the New York Times or that drone delivery that seems like literally crazy a year ago. You're like, I mean, really? Like, I mean, <laughs> okay, well, maybe it's not even exactly what we thought, but like the idea of it is no longer impossible. And so I think that's where access and access at the edge 
and access to information and having a shared language, all the things that the State of the Edge tried to start help you know, our community with, I think are really important foundations, but where it happens next, like is going to be very exciting to see. That's, that's amazing, Jacob. So we're at, we're at the top of the hour. I guess I'm going to ask you one more question because I, I don't know that I have a good answer for this and I'm curious what uh-huh. you're going to say and I'll see if I can catch you off guard. <laughs> if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing in the edge industry today, what would it be? What's the one thing you'd sort of push over the, over the edge, so to speak, <laughs> that maybe is taking a little longer than you, you think? Well, the, the thing that I would, and this is totally self, like selfish, but I would really love to see, see us figure out the physical parts of it. It's like, I mean, some of us are passionate about that, like the, the logistics and the delivery and getting the things in and moving stuff from Chicago to Dallas and blah, 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 blah. Right. But most people don't care. And I think like standardizing or figuring out a way in which we can stamp out this thing, the 35 millimeter thing and really compete and bring value at a different layer would be huge for the edge. And so that I I think we could take further and that would require, I think probably some pretty big collaborations to happen. Well, I'm going to have you back on the show in a year and we'll uh, do it. We'll see how it is. Thank thank you so much, Jacob, for spending uh, an hour with us this morning from your I can't call it a cabin. It's not <laughs> a cabin. You actually are in an office now. No, absolutely. But I, I'm just amazed the copper wires, the, the bonded DSL at the end of the road worked for, for this amount of time. So it was great spending it with you. It was. Thanks a lot, Jacob. And appreciate you uh, showing up. All right. See you soon, man. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven. Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and NetFoundry. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Packet, an Equinix company, makes infrastructure a competitive advantage for the leading companies of the world with globally available, developer-friendly, bare metal, and a neutral, interconnected ecosystem of networks, software, and solution partners. Packet is on a mission to protect, connect, empower the digital world with infrastructure that moves at software speed. Learn more and view open job listings at packet.com.